BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. For thousands of years across cultures and continents, humans have experienced love, bonding, companionship. And with love, there comes the possibility of loss and of heartbreak, which is the title of a new book by science journalist Florence Williams. After the not quite expected end of a 25-year marriage, Williams found herself bereft, her body wasting away as she tried to reorient herself in a new solo life she did not ask for. In this book, she explores the emotional circuitry of love, betrayal, and loss, which is deeper than our species. We'll talk about the feelings and science of heartbreak and healing. That's next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by Florence Williams, author of the new book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey, an exploration of the heart, the brain, the immune system, and William's path of recovery after a bruising divorce. Welcome to the show, Florence. Thank you so much for having me, Alexis. So I don't want to start where the book starts, like in heartbreak, that is to say. Uh, Instead, I want to start kind of in the meat of a long relationship. What happens physiologically when two people in a romantic partnership really share a life and a bed and a set of friends and maybe some kids? What, What happens to them? What happens physiologically is that your bodies really tend to get into sync. They line up in some interesting and surprising ways. You know, if you think about it, you're sharing a bed with someone for months, years, decades. Uh, even your your respiration rates align, your heart heart beats align, your cortisol levels in the morning and the evening sync up. Uh, so in, in many ways, we're designed as mammals to co-regulate with each other. You know, having someone close to you is soothing, it's comforting, it makes you feel safe, and your bodies really register that. Yeah. And it even really kind of extends, and you found this in looking into the scientific research in the book, you know, some of these systems kind of extend to like some pre-human times in, in terms of the way that our bodies perceive each other. Yeah, that's right. We know from studying other creatures like prairie voles um, and, and from studying chimps, you know, other primates, our brains really change when we're in love, when we're in a relationship with someone. Um, it, it, it's a way that we know, as I said, we, we feel safe. And so it's sort of optimal for our health. Yeah. I mean, you actually, in the book, you go into quite some detail about the health benefits of marriage, at least for some marriages and some people within those marriages. 
What did you come to find out about the balance of research on the links between sort of health and partneredness? Well, I think we've known for a long time that being married is a healthy estate, <laughs> you know, as, as so many commentators and sort of early medical people have discovered. Um, it's the people who were married who lived longest. Um, they're the ones who seem to um, sort of recover more quickly from, from other tragedies of life and, and from sickness. Um, but we also know that when those marriages end, the people who are left may be worse off, in fact, than if they were never married at all. Hmm. And it's also, you know, the top line is people in, who are married are healthier as a statistical whole. But inside of that, right, weren't women in some cases, in fact, many cases, not actually gaining a great health benefit? Yeah, that's right. The health benefits of marriage are very unequally distributed, and they seem to benefit men especially. In heterosexual so, couples, we're talking here. In yeah. heterosexual yeah. couples, um, men really thrive, you know, in general. Um, you know, there's someone there to provide their social life, to, you know, provide, you know, square meals, to tell them to go to the doctor if they're not feeling well. Um, and after divorce, men actually tend to do worse uh, physically in terms of health, except that then they remarry. And they remarry in greater numbers and then they become healthier and they also end up with more financial resources after divorce. And we know that the financial resources for women are very clearly tied to health outcomes for them. So even though men do better in marriage, it's it seems like the women sometimes do worse off uh, if they stay single. Yeah. You also note that, you know, good marriages seem to be good for everybody. So we're talking like, you know, good, healthy marriages seem to be good for for both partners. Bad marriages, kind of counterintuitively, people seem to sort of meet their needs in other ways, and maybe that category can survive also. But there's this kind of so-so, the people who are in the great middle, that is actually a very difficult category to know how to deal with, right? Yeah, I was really interested in that because when I heard that people in so-so marriages, you know, don't necessarily thrive, uh, I, I said to Bert Uccino, who's a psychologist at the University of Utah, I said, oh, well, then it's probably better that I got divorced, right? Because it's, you know, it's not so great to be in an unhappy marriage. And he said, well, you know, not necessarily, <laughs> because we know that divorce itself is such a stressful process. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's so many things at play there in terms of, you know, conflict and custody fights and, mm -hmm. you know, again, the financial precarity. Um, but it's true that it seems like if you're in a so-so marriage, that's maybe even worse than being in a terrible marriage mm -hmm. because you can't rely on your partner. Um, the the uh, support that you get is sort of unpredictable. So you don't have the, the sort of coping mechanisms that you might have if you know you can't rely on your partner. Uh, of course, if it's really like a physically unsafe relationship, um, that's not going to be good for your health. Yeah. So I did want to set up your personal story here a little bit. Um, how did you meet your ex-husband? Because it's kind of crucial to the story that you met so young. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I met him my first day of college. So I was 18 <laughs> years old. <laughs> so you like your parents moved you into university and boom, you, you meet. Yeah. I mean, I think it was about three weeks before we actually started dating. But um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy. I was I was just such a baby. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and how did that uh, progress? Like you basically met stayed together through college, got married. Like, give us just that kind of brief thumbnail sketch. 
Yeah, I mean, it was kind of great, really. Uh, we were together for seven years before we got married. So I was 25 when I actually got married. And even that, you know, in retrospect, seems very young. Um, but we, I, I would say for, you know, a couple of decades, we had a pretty great marriage. Uh, we lived out West uh, in Montana and Colorado. We both had, you know, pretty, pretty great careers going. We had these two adorable children who showed up, um, I guess, after about um, probably 25 years of being together or 20 years of being together. Um, and I'd say that's probably when things started to get rocky. Mm-hmm. How did you experience that change of the rockiness? I experienced it the way I think actually a lot of women experience it in that I was kind of dismayed by the unequal burden of parenting. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think I had these expectations that that we would have this sort of equal partnership. And when you have kids come along, I mean, parenting small children is, it's so demanding. <laughs> it's so, so, it's sometimes very tedious. Um, it's boring. And I just felt like I didn't have enough support, you know, and I was really upset about that. It was, it was a disappointment. And I think, I think, you know, that's, that was kind of in some ways the beginning of the end. Yeah. A friend of mine described it. She said, you know, you're never alone and someone always needs something from you. (laughs) You know, those early years with kids. Yeah. Yeah. And mothers of small children we know are sort of the unhappiest demographic out there. Wow. And when did, you know, things, things are rocky, you're experiencing it as a, a kind of dismay and a kind of distancing um, from your ex-husband. And then comes a sort of this sort of catastrophic break, right? I mean, things really start to, the, the beginning of the end <laughs> uh, occurs. The beginning of the end occurred, uh, it seemed to me very surprising and kind of stunning, Um, I mean, it happened when I, you know, as as I think many of these things go, I discovered an email on his phone to another woman. um, And it was it was an emotional relationship that he was having with her. Um, But just knowing that he was actually in love with someone else and not so in love with me, you know, was was devastating. And, you know, I just I I don't know why, but I never I never anticipated it. I didn't expect it. you know, and it, I think the way our human brains register that kind of um, social rejection, as I came to learn, you know, is really, really profound because we have these hyper so, hypersensitive brains to any kind of social slight. We hate being compared to other people. Um, knowing that that attachment is fraying, you know, is, is kind of terrifying. Mm-hmm. I mean, you said that before this, you hadn't experienced heartbreak. And kind of weren't that interested in it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, when my friends went through heartbreak, I was like, oh, come on, don't be so melodramatic. Like it's, you know, obviously this relationship wasn't meant to last, you know, just move on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you discovered that you yourself weren't really kind of able to do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It came back to bite me. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I just, uh, I felt the pain so acutely and I, I felt it in my body, the pain registering, not just in my head, you know, in my psyche. Um, but I, I felt something really shift kind of in my stomach. I felt my chest tighten. Um, you know, my digestion changed. I wasn't able to sleep. I lost all this weight. I got sick and it, it so knocked me over that I just wanted to kind of put on my science journalist hat and find out, you know, what the hell was happening to me and how I could get better. Yeah. I mean, had you studied this sort of mind-body connection before? 
I had, yeah. I, I write often about um, psychology and human health. And uh, my book before this one was called The Nature Fix, How Being Outside Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. And I looked a lot about the connections between you know, how our external landscape gets reflected in our internal emotional landscape. And of course, I ended up leaning pretty heavily on the lessons from that book when I was going through this, you know, sort mm-hmm. of something way beyond just wanting better creativity and productivity. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that in the book, you kind of defined your task, at least in part, as unnumifying, <laughs> yeah. um, which is actually seems like a very complex thing to try and kind of reduce to or, or gain insight from fMRI, like brain imaging studies or your, you know, hormonal levels. That seems like a multifaceted, large, I mean, it just seems difficult to to turn it into science in that way. Yeah, I think I actually gained much more insight in that department by talking to my friends, Mm -hmm. (laughs) my friends who had, you know, observed my marriage for decades and said to me, you know, Florence, you have had your heart in a little box. You haven't really been paying a lot of attention to your emotions and to your Mm. feelings, probably because, you know, you were in a marriage that wasn't giving you what you needed. As many of us, I think, can relate, you know, you want to not spend a lot of time dwelling on what's wrong. Um, You kind of pack yourself up a little bit and, um, you know, put your chin up and and get things done. And and maybe we don't always do the sort of emotional excavation um, that that might be helpful in the long run, but that can be really disorienting and destabilizing in the short run. Yeah. We're talking with Florence Williams. She's the author of Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. Uh, and I wanted to say, if you like audiobooks, Florence actually recorded herself through a lot of this journey through Heartbreak, and there are actual clips of it in, in the audiobook. It's a fascinating and actually quite distinct object from the book itself. We'd love to, uh, the the printed book, that is, we'd love to hear from you. What have you learned from Heartbreak? You can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. What have you learned from Heartbreak? You can email that to forum at kqed.org, too. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more on Heartbreak after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Florence Williams, author of Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. And we do want to hear from you during the show. What have you learned from Heartbreak? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, of course, we're KQED Forum and the emails forum at kqed.org. 
Let's bring in Mona from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Morning, Alexis and uh, Florence. Um, I love that you wrote this book, Alexis. Um, you're, uh, Florence, um, your story, a lot of it is very familiar to my trajectory. Um, but I, you know, and at the time of my betrayal by my partner of um, 20-something years, um, I had actually been studying the science of trauma hmm. and was reading um, uh, Waking the Tiger, which really talks about the biological response to, um, you know, the fight flight response. And I was literally observing these reactions in my body of shaking, spasms, um, you know, huge biological changes. My nails went awry. I lost 20 pounds in like a week and a half. Like day to day, my weight would fluctuate. And I still have pain syndromes um, later on. So I'm just curious. um, I think a lot of folks would, would really talk about betrayal itself um, as as a trauma, as a traumatic um, experience because of that break in the attachment bond and loss of trust and safety. Um, I'm just curious about your take on that. Um, and, and, and for many people, it's, it's such a deep, dramatic, rock-bottom um, experience. Hey, Mona, thanks for sharing that with us. And I'm also glad to hear you sound like you're on the healing path, too. So that's that's good, too. Florence, uh, do you want to take that? I mean, this is like right right up your alley. This is right up my alley. Um, yeah, sure, Mona. And I'm sorry, you know, for what you've gone through. Um, I I was reluctant to apply the word trauma to my own experience at first because, you know, I had interviewed, you know, veterans who were suicidal and, you know, um, people who'd been through sex trafficking. And I just thought, wow, I mean, my husband dumped me. <laughs> it's really in a different category. But they did convince me, people did convince me that it is a traumatic experience because as you say, it, it really does sort of break down kind of your core self-concept and your core sense of safety. So especially with you know rejection, like this romantic rejection, you feel like you have been abandoned and your body doesn't really make the distinction between the sort of loss of love, rejection and love, and being literally sort of cast out onto the grassland by yourself, you know, to wander around among the hyenas. So your nervous system goes into high alert. I mean, it feels very imperiled. Uh, and I think it's fascinating that, you know, our, our brains sort of treat these two kind of, you know, uh, huge possibilities, you know, literally being alone and, um, and then just feeling like you've been abandoned uh, in, a, in a similar way. Yeah. Mona, do you have, want to follow up at all on that? Yeah, I just have to really watch the physical reaction as a separate thing from whatever intellectual or emotional experience I was having because mm. I couldn't think or therapize my way out of what my body was doing in the sort of, you know, the initial stages of all of that. So I just, I think that's, yeah, just an interesting way our bodies and minds work. Yeah. Thanks so much for that, Mona. Thank you. Florence, you know, this is something that I kind of asked throughout the book uh, to myself, sort of what role therapy was playing in modulating your body's response or not? Mm. Like, could you talk your way out of some of these things or did it require something else? Well, I think Mona's observation is really right. You can only talk your way out of it so far because what's happening, you know, in your brain is not really 
logical. It's, you know, you can, you can only sort of deal with it cognitively to a point. What you really have to do is figure out how to kind of separate the extreme anxiety and fear, you know, from the memories of this person. Uh, and so a lot of people are looking at, you know, different modalities, you know, for healing trauma beyond just talking about it. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of people kind of encouraging movement, for example, moving through grief, um, things like, um, well, I did a psychedelic experience mm -hmm. too, in, in kind of a bid to um, have a really technicolor awe experience. And I talk quite a bit about the power of awe and how that hits our brains when mm. we experience it uh, in this book. And I don't think we often hear that, that, you know, sort of one of the antidotes of heartbreak can be awe and can mm. be beauty, sort of making ourselves open to beauty. Um, and I, yeah, What's when the theory I there that, on why that would help? So the theory is that we know from certain, you know, psychological studies that some people are more resilient, you know, after heartbreak and after other life's tragedies um, than others. And, and one of the personality traits that seem to really help people is this notion of being open, being open to new experience, um, being open to curiosity, uh, being open to beauty. And even more specifically than that, people who are sort of aesthetically engaged enough so that they even feel goosebumps or have goosebumps when they're hearing a symphony or looking at a piece of art or looking at a waterfall. Um, we know that these people, for some reason, their brains become sort of better connected. So they're not just stuck in kind of the limbic emotional um, you know, power of fear and anxiety, but they can actually start thinking about maybe ways that their self-concept can relate to this beauty that they're seeing. Maybe they have moments of hope or optimism or joy associated with this experience. Maybe they ultimately feel some perspective, you know, that their problems are not as big as they think because they're able to look outside themselves enough to find beauty somewhere else. We're talking with Florence Williams, author of the new book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. And we're hearing from you, too. What have you learned from heartbreak? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Let's bring in Ashley from San Francisco. Welcome, Ashley. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, um, I just I I'm really thrilled by your work, Florence. Um, thanks for putting on this show, Alexis. But I had a I have an observation and a question. Uh, for me, I feel like in my life experience, heartbreak has been the best teacher, and I feel like the the lessons that you learn from heartbreak are really a hundred percent. Internal. If you focus on yourself, like, and ask yourself, "Why am I hurting? Why did this hurt my heart?" Rather than uh, asking why this other person did this, um, there's just so much. There's such a wealth to be learned. Um, but then, I my question is, I, I also feel like when you when your heart is really broken, you kind of have like two paths to go down. You can either open yourself up. To more love and questioning and or you can close yourself off and become more guarded and I just wonder Florence if if at least that's like my anecdotal experience and like mm -hmm. the experience of my friends and I just mm -hmm. wonder 
if there is any kind of like scientific or, you know, like you said that you've studied, you know, with psychology, if there is anything to that. Ashley, yes. Uh, I think those are amazing observations, um, really perceptive. And actually, I totally agree with you. I think that, um, you know, uh, most people do find a way out of heartbreak and I think do find major lessons from it. For me, I, I talked about, you know, feeling like I had been numb before and knowing that I could experience these depths of emotions also made me open to experiencing the highs. I felt like I had this expanded emotional range um, that was was beautiful, actually, um, that the sadness doesn't have to unravel you, you know, that we are capable of sort of moving through it and learning from it and learning to open our hearts more. But I also think you're right that not everyone has that experience. And from talking to the psychologists, um, I learned that about 15% of people really don't recover from heartbreak. And it's a similar statistic for people who don't recover from grief. You know, we hear this term, um, complicated grief or persistent bereavement. Um, and so, so there's something that, you know, in some people makes it very hard to move past the emotions associated with those memories. Um, and, and they do find it safer, perhaps, to shut their hearts down. Mm-hmm. Some of the factors that may contribute to that are early life trauma, um, but also some personality traits. So, so again, I was so encouraged by learning that openness not only is a trait that can help us become resilient, but, and this was the wildly optimistic part, we can actually train ourselves to become more open, to learn how to cultivate awe. And so that is what I hope is one of the lessons from this book, um, to help people learn how to do that, to find comfort and curiosity um, by experiencing beauty and awe. Thanks so much for that uh, point and that question, Ashley. You know, you discovered, you mentioned that you had found a greater emotional range You, as you started to unnumify. And one of the key points in the book that you make is that you discovered a kind of thrumming sensuality as you went back into the world alone. What did you sort of make of that and how did you see that as part of your recovery? Sure. It, well, it really surprised me. <laughs> I mean, I was 50 when I got married and I was so angry, you know, at men. I just thought I was sort of done there. Um, when you got divorced, you were 50. But yeah, I was 50. Yeah, I was 50 when the marriage ended. Yeah. Um, and I guess I was just kind of knocked out that the body sort of wants what it wants. And I found myself surprisingly attracted sexually um, to other people. And part of it actually is, is that both men and women after a, a breakup seem to increase testosterone levels. So, you know, there's maybe some adaptive reasons for that. You know, we need to kind of face a, a new challenge or find a new partner or whatever. But, but whatever, I mean, I was like, whoa, it was like discovering, you know, sort of a new sense almost. Um, and I found a lot of comfort um, through the sort of sexual awakening at the same time that I was having, as you say, this sort of um, increased emotional range awakening as well. And, you know, and, and, but, but, but it was unusual because I think you hear often after a big breakup, people tell you don't jump back in to another relationship, you know, 
really be careful about, you know, getting hurt again, um, you know, um, take six uh, months for every year of the thing and that take six it. months for every year of your relationship, heal yourself first, you know, all this. And I was like, I don't have time for that. You know, I, I've still got some hormones and I, I found this like tremendous healing actually through that, which really surprised me. Yeah. Um, some interesting questions coming in, you know, <laughs> Rob writes, you know, across cultures and more and less monogamous settings, the U.S. is a dystopian anti-communitarian hellscape. Does that matter for <laughs> how individuals feel when trauma occurs? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a rhetorical question. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, sure. We, we live these very atomized lives. Um, more people are living alone now than ever in the history of our species. Um, you know, it's no wonder that many of us report that we don't have a, even one contact we can really count on if we, you know, in a crisis, someone to, you know, sort of bail us out financially or, you know, take us to the hospital. Um, increasingly more Americans are reporting they don't even have that. So of course we don't have the support we need, um, many of us, when we go through a huge blow like this. And, and that's why I think it's so important, um, well, among other reasons, but, but to really reach out, you know, when you're feeling this pain. I think there's so much stigma and shame sometimes associated with heartbreak, it feels like a very singular experience. But if you're able to reach out, you know, in an authentic way, um, and th then you can learn that actually it is a very universal shared experience. Some people will not really be there for you, probably, but some people will be and you learn who your friends are. And it's yeah. incredibly helpful. How different do you think the dynamics you're describing in these, you know, traditional heterosexual, like cis hetero couples, how different do you think those dynamics are or does the research show are different in other kinds of couples, romantic configurations and non cis hetero, you know, long term partnerships? So, of course, we wish that there were more research in all of those areas. Um, there, uh, there's not a lot of research, especially in um, sort of configurations of bigger than two. I think there's, there's very little research there. Um, we do know that it looks like for uh, especially uh, women in, um, in homosexual marriages, they seem to be happier. And part of that is because they don't have the sort of disappointments associated with, um, you know, the, the kinds of division of labor um, that we see in so many heterosexual marriages and that I certainly experienced. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it, it, some of these gay marriages really ha have it more figured out in terms of that. Yeah. We're talking with Florence Williams, author of Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. And I want to bring in Alela from Kensington. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Hey, welcome to the show. Hi. Oh, hi. Look, I just wanted to say uh, I'm really enjoying this topic, but I went through a, a divorce when I was in my late 20s. Mm -hmm. I'm now 70. And my husband actually cheated and got two women pregnant. Ooh. And then I got pregnant and my I miscarried my child at six months. So I had a lot of traumatic stuff going on. Uh, but what I wanted to say is that when I was going through my divorce, I felt like an utter and complete failure. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking down the street just sobbing openly. I didn't care who saw me. I didn't care. Mm -hmm. But I had seen models, role models of good marriages, my parents, family members. So, I mean, I just felt like 
a failure. But what I learned through all of this and my life experience is that I can get that I am very resilient and I can get to the other side. Mm. And I'm so thankful for that. And it taught me what I wanted and what I wouldn't tolerate, what I would and would not tolerate in a relationship. So I'm thankful today. Thank you so much for that comment. You know, I wanted to ask uh, you, Florence, about, you know, that kind of metaphor that Aleli used, which I think a lot of people use, about getting to the other side. Um, and you kind of use it in the in the book a little bit, too. You know, these kind of journeys. It really does feel like a journey, both like in time, but also kind of in into ourselves. That's right. I I did use that. It's 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 certainly a, a common sort of, um, you know, I think just schema to kind of put it in like you're crossing some kind of big divide into your new life. But I think it was naive of me to expect that there would be a kind of destination, mm-hmm. you know, that suddenly you go from the land of heartbreak to the land of being healed. Um, one thing I learned <laughs> maybe the hard way is that, you know, closure isn't that simple um, that uh, I, I had to learn to become a person who uh, had, you know, to move from being someone who wanted closure to being someone who could learn to be comfortable with not having closure. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that was part of the sort of personal growth experience for me. Um, And I did, you know, I think I did become more comfortable with it. I I think that it's not, there's, there's not sort of a linear progression, you know, to healing, (laughs) there's a lot of, there's just going to be still many, many pangs of regret, pangs of sadness, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, pangs of yes, feeling like a failure, that still happens. But, but I think you can also kind of arrive at a place where you're more comfortable holding kind of conflicting emotions, like, yes, there's still sadness, but there's also tremendous, you know, love, and there's also joy. Um, And, and that's okay. Alela, thank you so much for sharing that painful experience with us, and I'm glad you got to the other side. We're talking with Florence Williams, author of Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey, and we'd love to hear from you. What have you learned from Heartbreak? Numbers 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You know the email. It's forum at kqed.org. And the Twitter, Facebook, Instagram are KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Florence Williams, author of the new book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. I wanted to ask you, you know, you you did this whole book. What in the end 
do you think worked? Like, could you in the end, I know it was a complex process and hard to know exactly, you know, if A led to B, but like, what were the kind of two or three things that you would really want people to take away from this that, that worked for you? Yeah, I, I would again sort of emphasize this, um, this opening yourself up to sort of curiosity and to awe and to beauty. I think that that was huge for me. But, you know, part of it is that when you're outside in nature, you actually do calm down. We know from the science, it, it actually can help put your nervous system sort of in a more comfortable place. And there's no healing that's going to happen, you know, until until that happens. Um, and then the sort of connection, the connection piece, reaching out to your friends and family, also connecting to the natural world, we know is this great antidote just for loneliness, you know, one of the downstream effects of heartbreak. Um, and then finally, uh, you know, and I, I learned this after talking to one of the scientists who was actually analyzing my white blood cells for signs of loneliness. He said, you know, we know that the one thing that moves the needle most is um, developing a sense of meaning, sort of meaning from your experience, and also purpose. Like, what can you take from this moving forward? How do you create this new narrative um, where you are a shinier person, um, both emotionally and in your immune system? Yeah. I mean, thinking about that purpose for you, I mean, on balance, do you think writing this book was healing? I mean, I'm just imagining the timeline of this process and needing to go back into it all these times, you know, both the writing yeah. of the book, the editing, the publishing, now the talking. Right. Um, did it? Did that help with that purpose side or with the meaning-making side? I think that's a really perceptive question because um, on the one hand, you know, I, I started writing this book right away and it did, it got me up in the morning. It sort of got me out into the field. I talked to all these, you know, fascinating scientists who, by the way, all shared with me stories of their heartbreaks, mm. you know, which was, which was so validating. Uh, that part was healing. But then, yeah, I mean, I had to spend months and months and months uh, sort of writing these scenes of pain, kind of mm. keeping my feet in the land of heartbreak. Um, and that was hard, but that was probably not so beneficial. But the amazing thing is that once I like pushed send and like was done with the manuscript and sent it off, I was like, oh, I actually feel like I'm, I'm done. Like I'm, you know, again, no perfect closure, but I was like, I'm sort of tired of heartbreak. I'm tired of my own heartbreak. I'm tired of hearing myself talk about it. I'm like ready for the next chapter. <laughs> yeah. Taking off the, like a, like chain mail, you know, you'd been carrying around. Yeah. That was surprisingly liberating to be done with the book, not actually the writing of it. Yeah. Let's bring in Shauna from Oakland. Welcome to the show, Shauna. Hi, um, Alexis. I wanted to thank you for this topic. I just love listening to, to your shows in the morning. Oh, and I wanted to share share my story of heartbreaking, kind of what I learned from it. You know, I'd, I'd been with a, a guy for over 10 years, off and on through college, and we ended up getting pregnant and having a baby. And almost as soon as the baby came, it was First, I'd, I'd expected to have to do all of the responsibilities because I, we had a pretty traditional relationship. But when he just decided one day that he didn't want to be in a relationship with me, it was earth shattering and I was numb and I couldn't move. And even though I'd been a single woman through my 20s and had traveled the world, I just found myself immobilized. And so when the author talks about feeling abandoned, that's exactly what I said to him. Mm -hmm. You're an abandoner. You are an abandoner. And I remember that it actually kind of triggered me to hear her say that. But, but as I tried to 
crawl myself out of heartbreak and move forward because now I'm a single mom, which, by the way, was the most horrible thing one could have ever aspired to be at that point in my life. I felt like a failure. As a previous caller suggested, and I attended grief um, groups to kind of move past it, just with people who lost their pet and who lost loved ones to death. And what I realized is that in this country and, and probably around the world, the way we utilize fairy tales creates a false sense of dependency on men in order to make one whole. And it's re- really pro- used as a tool for oppression of women because we get into these arrangements with these social contracts and, and expectations that we're going to be together because we love one another, we're going to be able to have a family. And so when one party just abruptly breaks the contract, women are burdened immensely. Some never move past it. Some, you know, some never are able to self-actualize having these the, the responsibility of, of raising young children, especially. It's very, very, very traumatic. And so when I think of metaphors, I think love is a battlefield. And so the connection with, you know, the trauma of of folks who've been in war is completely appropriate. Fortunately for me, I was able to to move out west and I I feel much better. It's the redwood trees, it's the people, (laughs) it's just everything. Mm -hmm. But um, I really do think love is a battlefield and, and and I, I've stopped utilizing these fairy tales, um, which I recognize to be a pedagogical tool to create women, to create a codependency, particularly in heterosexual relationships between men and women. And so we should all challenge challenge that, that structure. Sean, how do you think you can get in kind of right relationship then with men, given what you've said about the way that a lot of these narratives about the way a marriage should go or the relationship between men and women and talking about in this case should go. How do you kind of get around that to have a a genuine human to human connection with somebody? Well, I mean, I have to start off with it's everything is economics. I mean, for me, when I was in my 30s, I expected, you know, oh, the man is the head of the household and, you know, he comes in and he gives you this diamond and you're waiting and you're, you know, with bated breath for these things to happen. Now that I'm in my 40s, it's just like, listen, if we're going to be in relation with one another, it will be an equal partnership. And these are the expectations I have for you. Are you able to meet these expectations? If no, let's just have love and have fun. But in terms of creating a life with someone, it's very important that the economics meaning that women have a room of their own, to to quote a famous Southern writer, to just kind of, you know, go and do as they please, but and create children and birth children in a in a in a relationship where they feel completely empowered. And I certainly would not advise women to have a baby with the expectation that a man is going to be completely helpful if you have not had that conversation. Because it's difficult to change behaviors that are so deeply embedded in our country and women bear the brunt of everything that's happening in society. I mean, it 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 it, it can be life shattering to have a children child with a person yeah. or children, and you have um, un, unmatched or unreconciled expectations. Yeah. Hey, Sean, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. A really beautiful call. Thank you so much. And Florence, you want to respond to any of those pieces of, of what you said? I know there was a lot there. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the main thing I can say is right on. <laughs> I, th I think Sean is absolutely right. Um, yeah, I mean, the burdens of divorce fall, you know, so unfairly on women. We know that they're twice as likely to end up in poverty after divorce. Uh, and of course, we know that financial security in this country is linked to health. You know, it's 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 who can afford health care. It's who can live in a healthful environment. Um and, uh, I, you know, as the, as, as the child of a single mother, you know, I, I was super aware of, of that. And um, I, I felt like after my own split, I was kind of feeling the resentment of generations of women that <laughs> really piled on. Yeah. Let's bring in another call. Let's bring in our first uh, male caller, Ken from Woodacre. Welcome. Uh, good morning. Um, well, I'm 59. I've been in a, a marriage for about 22 years, which overall is good, but it also has these foundational things that are just um, heartbreaking. And I've experienced heartbreak in other relationships, um, both uh, emotional uh, or romantic and just friends. What I'm finding for myself in terms of what I'm having to survive and be resilient on is the breakdowns in communication that occur at the roots of, of pretty much all of these things. And I find myself in situations repeatedly where it, things that, that seem easy to, that should be easy to talk about, just become un, unreachable in a conversation. And there's therapy and all sorts of stuff. We just seem like you can never get to the root of things. Mm. And I find myself in a place of like, well, how do I live with this overall? Um, so I'm realizing that kind of in the, the heartbreaks I've had, uh, communication and and is such a a, a thing. Um, yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to make that comment. Yeah, no, thank you for that, Ken. And you know, Florence, you talk about this in the book that sort of what what preceded the real sort of legal end was really kind of the the end of uh, not just communication but sort of um, connection. Yeah, that's right. And and communication is at the heart of that. I think your caller is right. I, I think for us. You know, we married so young, and I, I think we both just wanted to kind of project a sort of happiness and competence. And I think we were really unskilled at talking about what our real needs were, talking about what our real fears were, talking about um, how to meet each other's needs. So, I mean, I totally take responsibility for that as well. It's it's a two-way street. And and I think it's a tragedy that, you know, we don't learn that. We don't mm -hmm. learn those skills in our families often. We don't learn them in schools. Um, and in fact, we learn the opposite. You know, we learn that it's not okay to express big emotions or to have big needs. Um, and uh, I, I think it's, it's really... It results in heartbreak. There's no question. If yeah. we want to prevent heartbreak, we need to teach these emotional skills uh, to our kids. I always think maybe the most profound thing I've ever heard from a therapist was the the simplest thing, which was just you have to talk about what's really going on. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. so hard. It's so hard. As a talk show host, I'm okay with oftentimes <laughs> just talking. Um, and, right. But you had to uh, talk about what's really going on. Uh, and if you didn't, that was actually what led to uh, the, the deepest kinds of problems. Um, there uh, are a lot of comments for you, which we're not going to get to all of them. I'm sorry about that. But I want to ask uh, one from Laura. Laura writes, can your guests talk about fear? 
I'm someone who's odd by nature and feel it deep in my bones, but I also know that I have a lot of fear around opening myself up to another person after going through the trauma of divorce. How do you bridge that? Oof, fear. Boy, that is the big one. Um, I, you know, I, I, it was, I think it's the psychologist Claire Bidwell Smith who said anxiety is the missing stage of grief. And of course, fear is related to that. You know, once we've been hurt, um, we're very, very sensitive to feeling it again. You know, I, I, one of the things that helped me that we didn't really specifically talk about, Alexis, is, is meditation, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of recognizing the fear when we're feeling it kind of you know, um, letting, letting ourselves feel it, but not letting ourselves be governed by it. And, and these are really subtle skills, but, but, you know, Buddhists talk about it all the time, um, that, that it it is anxiety that prevents us from fully living our lives. So it's a really important skill to have. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in Catherine from Oakland. Hi. Hi, Catherine. Hey, uh, uh, I just really responded to you when you when you were talking about a feeling of awe and how that can help you kind of get through um, your experience. When I was going through this, I started running and I'd never run before. I'd been to the gym, but I was too devastated to kind of face people. (laughs) So I would run and it was just the only time of the day where I felt like I can do it. You know, I'm going to get through it. I'd finish running. I would feel strong. I would just kind of have this warmth throughout my body. And I could, you know, I could look ahead. I could look to the future and feel like I was going to be okay. And people ask me now, you know, why do you run? And I say, I run because it kind of saved my life. And it really kind of brings me out of myself and helps me kind of see the world. And it, I really, I, I just see it as something that got me through this experience, which was devastating. Catherine, did you have a, uh, a particular trail or like circuit or park that you like to run in? I live in Washington State on um, on an island, on San Juan Island, and I would run through the parks. Oh, wow. So you and were really, was, like, among the towering trees, dripping yeah. moss and all that. <laughs> like, you got the full experience yeah. of, you know, the interconnectedness of nature. Yeah. I was chased by a fox one morning. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be, to be away chased from by her a fox. kids, And it was like, okay, I'm not going to hurt you, but <laughs> it was wow. a beautiful place to be. Although, uh, you know, I couldn't see it for so much of my day because I was so kind of locked in this sadness. But it helped me out. Thank you for that, Catherine. Um, I want to get to uh, commenter Sylvia, who writes, My husband of 29 years moves out of our home tomorrow. I'm trying to cope. My body is feeling the stress. My jaw has been tight and hurting for months. The idea of experiencing awe, curiosity, and leaning into friends and family makes sense as a way to ease the pain. I want to hear more about the third suggestion, develop a sense of meaning and purpose. Are you saying look back at the marriage and take lessons from it, or are you saying focus on discovering my own life purpose? Thanks for writing to us, Sylvia. Yeah, thank you, Sylvia. I'm real sorry for what you're going through right now. It's a super acute and difficult time. Um, but thanks for your question. I, I actually mean both of those things. So, so maybe I need to separate them and not say they're the same thing. But I think the meaning is, you know, what you can take from looking back. Uh, you know, what is the story that you can tell yourself, you know, kind of of what happened, but also who you want to be now. So I think it's connected to purpose as well. Um, you know, the, the purpose piece, I think, is more, when I think of purpose, I think it's how can you help other people? 
and how could you sort of look beyond, you know, your own experience? Because that's ultimately, I think, what's really going to help pull you out of, you know, your personal moments of grief. Uh, and also, you know, it's what it's what we, it's what the world needs. The world needs you to needs you to feel that way. Yeah. And you know, Sylvia um, Marie writes in, not quite in response to you, but maybe this will help. Marie writes, "I was married for 22 years. Betrayal and heartbreak ended it, but I had the image of myself." as a leaf falling through the air, which was both terrifying but also full of possibilities. I could land anywhere. That was 24 years ago. I went back to dancing, something I had always loved. It led to a whole new and wonderful life. Uh, Last question for you, Florence. You know, you're now four years, I think, or maybe more than four years past the end of the marriage, and I'm guessing 18 months or a year past writing the last line to the book. What's your life like now? Oh, it's pretty great. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really close to my kids. You know, I'm awed by them every day and inspired by them. Um, I have great friends and I know who they are. And I feel, you know, confident in their sort of love for me and expression of that love. I feel like I show up better for the people in my life. I feel like I'm a better listener. I feel like I'm more empathetic. I feel like I ultimately have a greater capacity for love than I ever have before. And I also, you know, frankly, now that this book is out, out in the world, I feel like I, you know, turned this pain into something useful and that has given me a sense of purpose. And I, so I feel really good about that. Yeah. Did you, uh, have you decided to repartner or are you, uh, you're like, no way. <laughs> um, I, I still believe in love. I still believe it's a great way to move through an uncertain world. I, um, I, I am seeing someone and I, I, you know, who knows where it'll go. I, I think, I guess it's important to say, I don't necessarily think finding Prince Charming has to be the sort of only way out of heartbreak, although it, it's kind of an ending a lot of people ask me about and they expect. But I really want to emphasize that I think that there are a lot of ways to love and there are a lot of ways to be loved. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. That's Florence Williams, author of Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. It's really been fun. Forums produced by Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Susan Britton, Dan Zoll, Grace Wan, and Caroline Smith. Judy Campbell's lead producer for the 9 O'Clock Hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Jennifer Ng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindy, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.